Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening, welcome and happy Easter. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, we're looking at the leadership and legacy of Margaret Thatcher and we'll be debating her impact on British politics and society. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we looked at the rise and fall of Adolf Hitler and we find out why the Holocaust took place and why he lost the Second World War so spectacularly. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Aloud, our website newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. Tonight's debate is on Margaret Thatcher with this weekend marking the 10th anniversary of her death. Britain's first female Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher has been described as a cultural icon as well as one of the most divisive and polarising leaders in her country's history. So in tonight's show we want to explore her leadership, her relationship with Ireland, her impact on British politics and society and lots more besides. And to help me do this I'm delighted to welcome our panel of experts. Charles Moore, Baron Moore of Etchingham, is the author of the award-winning authorised biography of Margaret Thatcher, published in three volumes. And he's the former editor of The Daily Telegraph, The Sunday Telegraph and The Spectator. Professor Clive Bloom is Emeritus Professor of English and American Studies at Middlesex University and is an expert on political protest and revolutionary movements. And he's the author of Thatcher's Secret War, Subversion, Coercion, Secrecy and Government, 1974 to 1990. Well, you're both very welcome. And later in the show I'll be talking to Professor June Purvis, Professor Emerita of Women's and Gender History at the University of Portsmouth and expert on the women's suffrage movement. She's the editor of the Women's History Review Journal. And I'll also be talking to Professor Richard Vinan, Professor of History at King's College London and the author of Thatcher's Britain, The Politics and Social Upheaval of the 1980s. Well, as I say, you are all very welcome. And Charles, I might begin with you and maybe a question about how Margaret Thatcher is remembered today, because this weekend does mark the 10th anniversary of her death. But of course, she is out of power 33 years. So it's a it's a long period in which we can, I suppose, assess how her image perhaps has changed. And is she still as polarising and divisive a figure as she was? Well, I qualify the adjective divisive in, in respect to Mrs. Thatcher. It's true that she wished to make a great impact and a great change, and therefore she welcomed arguments and um, was ready to confront difficult situations. But I think in some ways the reason she won and kept on winning was that she did produce a much greater level of industrial harmony. She came in in 1979 when Britain was riven by strikes and all the problems that went with them. And a very significant statistic is that when she came in in that year, more than 29 million working days were lost to strikes. And when she left office in 1990, fewer than 2 million working days were lost to strikes. So I think the ultimate effect of the reforms of all that sort uh, was was not divisive. It was actually created a more harmonious uh, workplace than had existed in Britain for many years. I think now you're quite right about the, the way you know, time passes and there's more of a perspective. And a lot of people remain very anti-Mrs. Thatcher. A lot of them remain very pro. But what I think is important is that it's common ground that she made a great difference and is a figure of great interest, not only for her political views and her actions, but also because of being the first and only woman of overwhelming political importance in Britain and the example that that set. And I find that when modern politics are discussed, people do refer very much to Mrs. Thatcher. And quite a lot of people say, oh, if only we had Maggie here, it would be so much better. We wouldn't have all this nonsense, etc." And other people you know, take, a, take a different attitude. But I, what is undoubted is that her, her image in people's minds is very strong. And what she stood for and why she mattered 
is clearing people's imaginations, I think. I think our policies since 1979 have built a new opportunity, Britain, which can hold its head high in the world of international affairs, and I'm sure those policies will continue, and we shall all pull together to ensure that they do. Ms. Alice Mark. with her friend, the Honourable Member for Sirencester and Tewkesbury, when he said in the debate last Thursday that her forced resignation had been brought about by an act of treachery by, on the behalf of some of her colleagues. Yeah, yeah. Mr Speaker, I have resigned and there will soon be a successor. I wish him well. I am sure he will continue the policies which have been so successful been so successful for Britain and he will continue to defeat socialism. And Charles, I wonder, do people though project a, an image onto her that that ignores maybe the, the complexity and the nuance of her time as Prime Minister? It kind of ignores her pragmatism. It ignores her, her I suppose, her position on Europe, which is sometimes now remembered as being much more aggressively anti-Europe than, than perhaps it was and that that people kind of read into or remember uh, the life and career of Margaret Thatcher in, in different ways. You're quite right. And this is true of both of some of her friends and some of her foes. You're very right, I think, about the pragmatism. She always sold herself as a conviction politician and she most certainly was. But any old fool can be a conviction politician in the sense that you could just keep on standing up and saying what you believe. The question is, a really successful politician is somebody not only with the convictions, but the capacity to act upon them successfully. And Mrs. Thatcher could not have stayed in office for an unprecedentedly long time if she were not a very pragmatic and, in a certain sense, cunning politician. And one of her um, skills, one of part of her cunning, was never to say, look at me, aren't I cunning? What she would always say was that she was pushing on according to her convictions, which was true, but was not the whole truth. And I sometimes think with modern male politicians, uh, George Osborne springs to mind in Britain, for example, um, they're so clever that they want to keep telling you how clever they are. And actually, that's not a very clever thing to do. (laughs) Um, And uh, I, I think she understood better how to present to the public and to preach to the public uh, while at the same time being highly pragmatic about what to do when. And Charles, it's interesting to look at the the subtitles of your uh, your three volumes on, on Margaret Thatcher. The first volume up to nineteen eighty three, not for turning. The second volume up to nineteen eighty seven, everything she wants. But the third volume from nineteen eighty seven on, herself alone, and it covers the the downfall of Margaret Thatcher and. What did go wrong for? Because it definitely seemed that she became more rigid in those final years and made mistakes that that she wouldn't have made at the start of her premiership. I think that is right. And I think um, that's to do with Anno Domini, the passage of time and the, and the problems that always occur when people are in office for a long time, which is that, first of all, you do get corrupted by power to some extent. Secondly, you're very enmeshed in what you've already done. And so it's harder to, you have in a funny way less freedom of action. And thirdly, very important in her case, you have a whole load of colleagues who are getting fed up with you and want you to go so that they can have their day in the sun. And, uh, you know, this week Nigel Lawson died. And um, he was very important in this because his relationship with Margaret Thatcher was extremely strong in the early and mid 80s and all went wrong in the late 80s. Both sides were at fault in it, I think. But they had serious real disagreements. And when he resigned in 1989, after a big row about whether or not Britain should enter the European exchange rate mechanism, uh, that was the beginning of the end for her. And and he was working with Geoffrey Howe, who resigned the following year and brought her down. So I think all that accumulates. And Mrs. Thatcher, I said, called the third volume herself alone, partly, of course, Sinn Féin means ourselves alone. And so there was a sort of in my back of my mind, a very slight sort of tease there. Um, but I think she did become isolated. And to some extent, she always was isolated, partly because she was the one and only woman. And she had such a lonely path to power. And she would always say, there's no second chance. There's no second chance for a woman. The, 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 men, the men's club will save its colleagues when they make a mess of things. 
no such luck for the woman. And so she always had a sense of precariousness, and this made her actually more brittle as the years passed. Clive, when people talk about Maria Thatcher, they also mm. talk about Thatcherism. And yes. you know, are, are they different things? Well, I think they are. Um, you need to, I think you need to separate what got called Thatcherism from Margaret Thatcher herself. Much was done in her name, uh, which wasn't necessarily what she was interested in. I mean, free market ideology started well before Margaret Thatcher. It got going in the early 1970s, so it predated Thatcher. Um, and the people that were behind that felt the need to create the conditions for an economy and a society uh, free of political interference from who they called the left, in quotation marks. And that interference was seen as socialists, communists, authoritarians, uh, dissenters of any sort. Um, and this coincided, interestingly, talking of uh, Ireland, this coincided with the troubles in Northern Ireland and the need to control the population through intelligence gathering, surveillance and control on the streets. So the secret world of control on the streets was then imported into the mainland to undermine the left and uh, people like the, the protesters, the miners and other subversives, such as anti-nuclear protesters, the women of Greenham Common, etc. And so there's a weird contradiction here. On the one hand, we have the desire for free market capitalism, and the need for greater state control to make individual um, purchases out of collective groups. So um, the obvious example of this, and I think her legacy will never uh, get rid of this statement, is the idea of the, the July 1984 speech in which she talks about the enemy within. And uh, these enemies within, Arthur Scargill, Derek Hatton, Ken Livingstone, Tony Benn, Tariq Ali and others, um, were the people that were identified as against this ideological move and practical move as well towards free market ideology. But what I'm saying is that this free market ideology was underpinned by the troubles in Northern Ireland and the lessons learned in controlling the population there. And Clive, sometimes people think that anger about politicians is a, is a recent thing. People look at America and go, oh, they're so angry about when mm-hmm. Donald Trump was president. But then they forget that 20 years earlier, very angry about George W. Bush being president and forget that mm. 20 years before that, very angry about Ronald Reagan being president. But people were very angry about Margaret Thatcher's time as, as prime minister. And she certainly was... Uh, uh, widely loved, but she was also widely hated. And I wonder, why was she such a polarising figure? Was it because of the policies she was pursuing? Was it uh, because she was a a strong woman doing it? Uh, What were the reasons? Well, I think, first of all, I mean, she obviously was a strong woman, but she wasn't a naturally feminist woman. And so that obviously causes a problem before you start. Um, but the, the, fact that, the fact that when she was on television, she learned to use this rather hectoring, low voice that she uh, developed uh, when she had speech training uh, for those sorts of broadcasts, uh, sounded like she was uh, sort of a headmistress telling you off. And uh, she never, in her public appearances anyway, gave any concessions to anybody else. So the famous discussion she had about the Belgrano sinking um, with a woman called Gould who questioned her, and we had this sort of hectoring of the general public. Well, you can't do that, and that's stuck in people's minds. So however pragmatic or willing to listen to other people she was in private, in public she always gave this impression of being a woman who was someone who wouldn't put up with other people's views, which I think puts other people's backs up. More importantly, of course, equally, uh, there was the miners' strike and there was Northern Ireland. So both of these things were very divisive and were never resolved, really. Uh, Well, the minor strike has never been resolved till now. And the troubles in Northern Ireland have only just been possibly put to rest by now. So um, it's a very long, uh, long drawn and problematic history, I think. And delighted to be joined now by Richard as well. And Richard, it's interesting even the the name, the Iron Lady, I think it was something that a a critic in the Soviet Union gave her in 1976, but it stuck. And uh, in a way, though, it helped her image, I think, because it did show her as strong and decisive and prepared to stand up. uh, And that became part of the mythology uh, that surrounded her as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... um one thing you can't overstate with Thatcher is how lucky she was and her enemies. A curious sense in which Thatcher kind of needs her enemies. It's a kind of symbiotic relationship. It seems to be very significant that the word Thatcherism 
first used systematically in the pages of Marxism Today, which was the journal of the British Communist Party. Um, and there's a kind of way in which I think, you know, Thatcher herself benefits from that, um, uh, that things people initially put across as attacks on Thatcher end up rebounding to in her favour. And when you look at, I suppose, that myth, what are the, the key ingredients of it? Because people seem to have had a personalised reaction to her. Is it because uh, she was taking a strong view on the economy and what needed to be done to reform it, the, role, the idea of rolling back the power of the state, the leadership she showed during the Falklands? That what are the elements of it that I suppose defines her premiership? Well, I think that there are three different things, I suppose, really. There's um, the, the policies of her government, which I think in some ways were less controversial than you might suppose. So one to remember that, that a lot of the kind of rethinking of British politics had happened before Thatcher and some, to some extent across the political spectrum. You know, if you look at a person who's um, inspiring economic debate in the 1970s, it'd probably be Peter Jay, who's economic editor of The Times, but he's Jim Callaghan's son-in-law is a member of the Labour Party. Um, so there's a kind of economic rethinking going on across the Conservative Party, but also across the whole political spectrum. I think there's an extent to which things like the desire to contain trade union power, there are lots of different ways people try it, but both political parties are trying it from 1968 onwards, probably. Um, but then there's also a kind of sense of a, a, a more systematic way of dealing with this kind of stuff that becomes labelled as Thatcherism, which I think is not just the product of Thatcher. I think it's the product of lots of other people. So we talked about Nigel Lawson today. Of course, Nigel Lawson often regards himself as the real systemizer of Thatcherism, um, the person who kind of thought it all out, I think in his view, perhaps rather more coherently than Margaret Thatcher did. So that there's a kind of team effort there. And then there's Mrs. Thatcher's personal image, which I think is important to all this. It gives a kind of cutting edge in political terms, um, but which I think is is also slightly separate from it. It, it, it you know, um, is a good kind of, st she's a good standard bearer for a certain kind of politics. Um, but she's a standard bearer in a funny way in that there's this question of, is she a compromiser or is she uh, a kind of conviction politician? Being a bit of both. So she's brilliant at compromising when she needs to, often quite discreetly. Um, she doesn't like admitting she's compromised, um, but at the same time, always giving the impression to certain of her supporters, so to people on the back benches, for example, that really she feels the same way as she does, and she'd like to do these things if only her terrible wets in the cabinet would let her do it, do those kind of things. And quite often, you see that kind of right-wing backbenchers come away from meetings with her, convinced that she's on their side. Although, of course, she never puts these people in the cabinet, um, really, when it comes to running things on a day-to-day -day basis. I think she knows she needs to live more pragmatically with a group of colleagues with whom she doesn't always completely agree. Charles, how would you assess her leadership on the world stage? Because she does have the great triumph of the Falklands War and then she has that very close relationship with President Ronald Reagan, which helps you know, place the United Kingdom at the centre of, of these Cold War transformational moments with, with Gorbachev and Russia and so on. And it's, it's very much a time when and Britain has this central place that it hadn't had for many decades change, extraordinary change, has come upon the world. And that's why at this moment, Prime Minister Thatcher, we're especially glad to be welcoming you here to our shores and to have this opportunity to acknowledge the special role that you and the people of Great Britain have made in achieving this remarkable change. It was my privilege last June, shortly after my return from Moscow, to note in a speech at Guildhall your extraordinary role in the revitalization of freedom. Today, in welcoming you to these shores, I have, I and the American people again restate our gratitude. In the critical hour, Margaret Thatcher and the people of Great Britain stood fast in freedom's defense and upheld all the noblest of your island nation's traditions. Yours was the part of courage and resolve and vision. Bismarck reflected once that the supreme fact of the 19th century was that Great Britain and the United States shared the same language. And surely future historians will note that a supreme fact of this century was that Great Britain and the United States 
shared the same cause, the cause of human freedom. It's very notable, I find, when I talk about Mrs. Thatcher in all sorts of different countries, that the only ones in which she is a figure of great controversy are, are Britain and Ireland. Um, and in most other countries, she's um, much admired. And to, to a large extent, that goes across the political spectrum, funnily enough. So obviously, the right is more in favor of her than the left. But it's not such a big thing. There's a common interest in her, particularly in the Far East, in Eastern Europe and in the United States. And what they're p- plugging into is some idea of woman leadership, which dramatizes all sorts of situations and sticks up for a particular view of the world. Uh, you rightly pointed about the, about the Iron Lady was a supercase thrown at her by the communists. And one reason it was a Soviet, and one reason it was thrown at her was it was a sexist remark, because what they actually said was Bismarck was an Iron Chancellor. This woman thinks she's an Iron Lady. Well, you can't be an Iron Lady. How ridiculous. And she immediately grabbed that and used it to assert the strength of her own personality and the power of her sex and her belief in free Western democracy as opposed to Soviet communism. And she came at the right moment and uh, had already befriended Ronald Reagan before he became president of the United States. And it was a very powerful alliance. I think it's the only time that being such a strong alliance, and particularly because she was prime minister of Britain for the whole of Reagan's two terms. And it was she more than anyone that persuaded Reagan that um, the Cold War could become less cold because of um, the effect of Gorbachev. And she met Gorbachev well before Reagan did and encouraged Reagan to meet him. And the idea that you could win the Cold War, first of all, by fighting it hard, which she and Reagan did with uh, Cruz and Pershing missiles and so on, uh, but also uh, and encouraging dissidents in the East, but also then when you'd got a long way by doing that to look for some sort of um, negotiated settlement. And so she was, um, it went wrong for her at the very end because she got so annoyed and frightened about the unification of Germany that she lost influence with George Bush. But throughout the Reagan years, so eight years up to the beginning of 89, um, uh, she was the dominant Western politician after the US president and very, very close to him. And they really did, I think it can truly be said that they, with an important honourable mention for Helmut Kohl, did win the Cold War. And what about Europe? Where did she stand on Europe? Because she's seen now as this, you know, you know, proto-Brexiteer, but actually her position seems to be much more nuanced. There were times when she was critical of greater integration and maybe the, the, the single currency, as we've said, but she certainly wasn't anti-Europe or wanting to withdraw completely from it. Uh, yes, she... She never really liked what became the European Union. I think it wasn't something that she instinctively was at home with. But she certainly was not trying to get out of it at any point, really, while she was prime minister, except perhaps at the very end. But all the time she was fighting within it because she thought Britain got a bad deal. And she instinctively disliked uh, the loss of British sovereignty that it involved and continued to grow uh, in that time. And um, that was always there. But it was only at the very end when she was so worried about the single currency that she started to um, get really, really alarmed. Um, And it was then very interesting. In fact, in an interview with me, actually, just before she uh, resigned, when she was fighting for the leadership in November 1990, she, she raised the idea of a referendum, which she hadn't consulted colleagues about. And the referendum would have been about membership of the single currency. But it's a vital tool in what became Brexit. And she was the first person to um, introduce it into the conversation. And after she left office, she most assuredly was in favour of leaving the European Union and told me so on many occasions, but never said it publicly because of the controversy it would cause. She didn't know the word Brexit because she had died before the word was invented, but she did in her late years support the concept. But I think as long as she was in office, she had that thing that leaders tend to do. They think, well, if I'm around, things can't be too bad. And, uh, <laughs> and therefore, she did not completely break with the EU. She thought she could uh, move it towards a better position rather than throw it over. 
And of course, Richard, her position on Europe was something that led to, that contributed to the falling out with many of her ministers and uh, members of her own party. And in a way, she was an outlier, uh, which is hard to maybe think of now when you look at the Conservative Party. Oh, absolutely. I think the Conservative, I mean, you, you forget that her position on Europe makes her unpopular in the Conservative Party. So I think um, I mean, Charles will know more about this than, than me, but I think a unpopular among Conservative MPs, but also I've always felt that the Conservative Party in the country was a bit different in the 1980s from what it is now. That there was a kind of greater control of old-fashioned notables who tended to be rather pragmatic people who generally thought that Europe was, you know, maybe something they didn't like, but probably the least bad option under the circumstances. Um, so I can't help feeling even in the constituencies anti-Europeanism didn't play as well in the 1980s as it does now. I think also there's there's a big change after she goes. Partly, one has to say, she is very, very bitter about her downfall. Um, and I think she does, she does lose her touch towards the end of her period as prime minister. She's not as good a kind of instinctive politician as she had been before. And then she really, really loses her touch, I think, after she ceases to be a prime minister. I think Thatcher is one of those people who's, she's, she's, she sees politics as being about getting stuff done, being in power, not about kind of abstract principles. I always think the contrast with someone who's sometimes seen as someone who inspired her, Enoch Powell, is very interesting in this respect, in that Enoch Powell did see politics as being about abstract principles and did think being out of power was a price worth paying for kind of saying the right thing. I think Thatcher didn't think that, and therefore I think once she's out of power, she's a changed kind of person, you know, the... the constraints that had governed her when she was in office were gone. But I think actually those constraints were partly what defined kind of the real Thatcher. Um, I also feel journalists have a big influence on her. I was amused by Charles's remark about um, his interview with her. Um, I can't help feeling the way the press changes in the early 90s with people like Charles Moore and Paul Dacre rising up creates a new kind of appetite for the Brexiteer version of Thatcherism. And Richard, do you think that there is an element in the in her later premiership where she was so focused on international affairs and being this leader on the world stage that perhaps she neglected or her attention was less focused on what was happening in Britain and that that contributed to her uh, her her downfall then? Absolutely. So I think when she first comes to power for the first period, first three years of her time in office, She's really very self-consciously a domestically focused politician. And of course, she has a foreign secretary at that stage. She's very much an old establishment figure, Lord Carrington, but also someone she trusts. So her view is kind of he gets on with foreign policy um, and she's dealing with the economy mainly. Um, I think after the Falklands, things change, partly because Carrington goes. And I think she never has a foreign secretary. She trusts quite as much as she trusts him, but also... The Falklands kind of creates her as this new figure, this world historical figure. So partly just world leaders take her more seriously after the Falklands. Um, And then also, as Charles pointed out, just the fact she's in office for so long gives her a kind of status as the kind of doyen of international statespersons. Um, I think also that there's a shift in terms of where she's admired. So um, this idea that she's, she's not regarded as a divisive figure anywhere except Britain. I think that's overstating it a bit. I think probably in France, for example, you'd find quite a lot of people who were still very hostile to Margaret Thatcher. Um, But I think it's certainly true that in Eastern Europe, in the United States and the Far East, there's a big kind of Thatcher cult, but one which especially builds up actually after she leaves office. So obviously the Far East, she goes on a lot of kind of lecture tours in the Far East. Obviously Eastern Europe, very understandably, um, they admire her because of standing up to the Soviet Union. I think the Czechs admire her because she's always very firm on British kind of responsibility and guilt about Munich, for example. Um, I think the Americans admire her partly because she was close to Reagan, also again because she goes on the lecture circuit in quite a big way in the States after her fall. So I think that there are particular areas outside Britain. But of course, as the Thatcher of 1980 would have recognised, the key duty of a British prime minister is A, to win elections in Britain, Uh, and B, to implement policy in Britain. And of course, in terms of actually influencing things at world level, I don't think she's ever as important as she likes to think she is. You know, the Cold War is ended by Gorbachev and Reagan, um, not by uh, Margaret Thatcher. 
Okay, well, tonight we are talking history on Easter Sunday about the legacy and leadership of Margaret Thatcher. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be talking to Professor June Purvis about the image of Margaret Thatcher and her polarising legacy. So stay with us here on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History on Easter Sunday as we debate the leadership and legacy of Margaret Thatcher. And I'm delighted to be joined by Professor June Purvis, who's Professor Emerita of Women's and Gender History at the University of Portsmouth, an expert on the women's suffrage movement in Britain. She's the founder and editor of the Women's History Review Journal. Uh, June, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much for asking me. We've been talking about the polarising legacy of Margaret Thatcher and it is interesting that it is such a complicated legacy because of uh, some achievements but then also some significant failures as well. Yes, that she was a very divisive figure. I think particularly in terms of her domestic politics because she was determined to do what you call roll back the state and to privatise state-owned utilities. And also, don't forget, she wanted to tame the trade unions. To be honest, I think the trade unions needed some shaking up there because they were undemocratic and often quite sexist. So she did bring in legislation to enforce secret ballots in which every union member could vote, including women. Um, And that was very unpopular at the time. But don't forget, when Labour then got into power, they didn't reverse that legislation. So I think it was right. So I think the the worst bit about her domestic policies was the closing of the coal mines in South Wales, parts of Scotland and the north of England, because she seemed to be so hard-hearted about it. When we see film of policemen on mounted horses running down miners who were trying to protect their livelihoods and their communities as well, I think it's very, very shocking. And did the rise of unemployment during this period as well perhaps suggest to to those who are opposed to her leadership that the economic policies weren't working? Yes, I think so. I think that that was the case. And let's talk about the poll tax. Why was that so controversial? And why did that hasten the end of her? Well, I think it was the poll tax really that undid Margaret Thatcher. Uh, The poll tax was introduced, which would impose a tax on every person who lived in a house, whereas previously um, the tax had been on the house itself. So the poll tax meant that people with large families would have to pay more uh, than those with smaller families. So it was very, very unequal. And of course, that forced her out. The cabinet, her own cabinet forced her out. And I can remember the day she left Parliament She was in a maroon suit and there were tears in her eyes. It was the 22nd of November, actually. So it wasn't the electorate who got rid of her. It was her own cabinet. And that's something that's often uh, left out of the the memories or the recollections that... uh, Yeah. uh, Because many of them went on to then idealise her and deify her while leaving out that they were, in fact, the ones who had removed her. Yes, yes. I think you're right on that. But don't forget her style of leadership as well was quite confrontational. She liked debate. She wasn't a consensual leader. And I always see her as a sort of queen bee who liked to have men around her with whom she could argue and debate. So she never promoted any women to her cabinet in her 11 and a half years as prime minister. The only woman she ever promoted was Baroness Young, who she made leader of the House of Lords. So she wasn't a feminist in that way. In fact, she once said feminism is poison. And is that why do you think feminists have an issue, many feminists have an issue with her? Because although she was a woman and the first woman prime minister of Britain, that she was seen as maybe not doing enough to support other women? Yes, I think think you're right on that. I know feminists who say to me, don't talk about that woman. But On the other hand, I find her quite fascinating because, as you say, she was the first female Prime Minister of Britain. She's been the longest-serving Prime Minister in the 20th century. And also, she had to struggle against the sexism she found in Parliament and also in terms of her social class. Don't forget, she was a grocer's daughter. And that was very, very unusual for women at that time to rise up the ladder like that. And I think what her father in particular, who was also a Methodist lay preacher, I think what he instilled 
instilled in her were those Methodist values of hard work, thrift and discipline. It's interesting to see the way she's portrayed on screen and on television. There was the the Iron Lady movie starring Meryl Streep about her her later years. I, I didn't think that was particularly good, maybe because it wasn't focused on her time as as premier. Gillian uh, Anderson playing her in The Crown, and people are kind of fascinated by these portrayals and fascinated by things like her relationship with Queen Elizabeth II that are shown in that. Yes. I mean, I, I found the Iron Lady a bit sad to watch in one way because it mainly focused on her years, as you say, out of office when she was living in the Ritz and she developed dementia. And you now there were those sad bits where she was talking to Dennis, who, had, who was already dead. Thatcher had been told when she became prime minister that she had to do something about her hair, about her clothes and about her voice to make herself look more feminine. And so she used to wear those blouses with pussycat bows and she had her voice lowered. It was considered too shrill. And I think Gillian Anderson got that off quite well in those episodes that we saw. Um, And of course, she she wasn't really very popular with the Queen, as, as we all know. Well, at least that's what we think. And why was that? Was it because the Queen was upset at the way the direction Britain was taking and the, the social unrest and division? Or was it just a, a, a personality clash between the two? I don't think it was so much a personality clash. I think it was really the direction that Thatcher was taking Britain and how hard-hearted she seemed um, in pushing through these policies. She was determined. She was right. And it seems as though she was pushing through policy irrespective of the hardship she caused to families, to communities, etc. Why do you think she didn't like consensus? And why do you think that uh, it seemed to be through argument and debate that she preferred to kind of drive through these? Was it because she wanted to play up that image of the Iron Lady or was there something else at work here? I've often pondered that question, and and I don't really know the answer. But she was quite tough. Don't forget, she came into Parliament in '59, um, and she'd already had one attempt at being elected to Parliament, and that had failed. So she thought, well, I need to train in the law. And while she was still in the maternity hospital, having given birth to her children, I still find this remarkable, she signed the form um, to study for the bar. And she was called to the bar in 1954. So she was trained in argument, I think. Perhaps the fact also that she'd been to an all-girls grammar school and then went to an all-women's college, Somerville College, Oxford, perhaps that helped to make her the way she was, you know, a woman, this queen bee who stood out. You mentioned sexism that she faced in the in the in the House of Commons and in Parliament, but I wonder, you know, there's also sexism that she faced in the media. Uh, oh yes, among some of her opponents, and I suppose how do we separate those who are motivated by genuine concerns and genuine criticisms, and then those who had a, a you know that it was their opposition was intensified, their dislike was intensified because this was a woman who was uh, doing the things they didn't like. Yeah, I think it's quite difficult to disentangle those. I think one point I always make is that a lot of the Conservative MPs at the time had been brought up by authoritarian figures such as a nanny and had a distant mother. And and they found it very difficult to challenge Margaret Thatcher. And yet, obviously, there was quite a bit of backstabbing going on as when she was eventually pushed out as prime minister. I think she was this towering figure, which some men both liked and some men loathed. So even though she was this towering figure, I think she was often still judged very much as a woman. 
Okay, well, my thanks to Professor Jane Purvis, Professor Emerita of Women's and Gender History, for joining us tonight on Easter Sunday to discuss the iconography, the imagery and the polarising legacy of Margaret Thatcher. We're going to take a quick break now. When we come back, I'll be rejoined by my panel as we explore the legacy and the impact of Margaret Thatcher. Well, welcome back to Talking History. It's Easter Sunday and we're debating the legacy of Margaret Thatcher. I'm rejoined by my panel, uh, Professor Clive Bloom, who's Emeritus Professor of English and American Studies at Middlesex University and the author of Thatcher's Secret War Charles Moore Baron Moore of Etchingham who's the author of the award-winning three-volume authorised biography of Margaret Thatcher and Professor Richard Vinan Professor of History at King's College London an expert on the history of modern Britain he's the author of Thatcher's Britain The Politics and Social Upheaval of the 1980s Clive, tell us about your book on Thatcher's secret war and this kind of internal cold war that was waged against uh, the so-called enemy within? Well, the enemies within were were multiple, as I mentioned before. Um, The interesting thing, I think, is that uh, Charles Moore mentioned that uh, she upheld dissent in uh, the Eastern Bloc. But of course, she uh, repressed dissent um, in uh, domestic politics. Obviously, it's not her specifically on most cases. It's the state. Um, state organisations, it seemed to me, had grown exponentially during the 1980s. Uh, we have um, secret intelligence units in Northern Ireland. Uh, obviously, you've got the SAS, the, the most famous. We had GCHQ, which uh, Tam Diel, when he was asking questions about the Belgrano, didn't actually know GCHQ existed. Um, we have um, MI5. There's, of course, MI6. Uh, There are other agencies, and um, at this point, there are absolutely no laws at all governing uh, the secret services. Uh, There's a directive by uh, a Home Secretary from the 1950s, uh, which tells people what uh, he feels they should do, but otherwise there's nothing uh, else. So they were really left to themselves. When Margaret Thatcher was asked a question by Neil Kinnock during the 80s on the secret services, she just said, they're doing their job, be quiet. I'm happy with what they're doing, although for the large part, she didn't actually know what they were doing. And the truth is, uh, there was more bugging, there was more robbery, and there was more use of private investigating uh, organisations. Uh, there was uh, much more going on behind the scenes, including the RUC special branch encouragement of, well, we'll say assassination squads for what it's worth. And this went on pretty much unorganised and unrecorded and unrefrained, and it went on for a very long time. And if you think of um, the type of coercion that was used against the miners and other people, uh, uh, Arthur Scargill, for instance, actually had his fish and chip shop bug to uh, listen in on what he had to say. So in the 1980s, there's a very, very strong and secret story about how the state, in, on behalf of Margaret Thatcher, not in her, in her name, not her directing it, but in her name, uh, directed these uh, attitudes. It was all begun much earlier. Um, you have a, a sort of coming together of the military, intelligence, and economic side of the world who agree that things need to change, as I said before. And um, so we have a number of people like Frank Kitson, um, uh, who else? We had Chapman Pincher, Airy Nee, Frederick Forsyth, and others joining together with people like Walter Walker, who talked about the Red Menace, uh, John Hackett, uh, David Sterling, even Huey Green, the entertainer, who all believed that Britain was being undermined by the left and by uh, sort of left-wing dissent. They tended to just really make everybody the same. They painted everybody with the same colours. So there was this idea, going back easily to Colin Wallace and Clockwork Orange, and the attempt to blacken um, Harold Wilson's name during the early part of the uh, decade, um, that we were actually under attack from communism and socialism, and that this somehow, this red menace, had to be destroyed. And it not not only created huge divisions, but it also created um, uh, wide spaces between different political views, the obvious example being the miners' strike. And Charles, you see similar controversy because this is a new age of terrorism and you have the hunger strikers and the controversy over that. But you also have the bombing of the hotel in Brighton 
where she's in yeah. in October 1984 and she goes on hours later to deliver her, her conference speech and you have a, a quote from one of her left-wing critics at the time who said uh, I don't approve of her as Prime Minister but by God she's a great tank commander but these were these were crucial challenges that she had to face during her time as leader. They were. Can I, can I just say about what Clive is saying that all the secrecy that surrounded uh, the intelligence services in those days predated Mrs. Thatcher. She was in favour of keeping that secrecy, though she was, in fact, the first to legislate to, for the so-called avowal of MI5, i.e. making it public. But the, her tendency was to preserve the secrecy. But the idea that somehow this all came through in the 1980s and was an innovation was absolutely not the case. Um, on, the, on the Irish uh, question, I think you raise a very important point. Mrs. Thatcher's career at the top was punctuated by terrorist attacks on people she loved and on herself, as well as, of course, on the wider population. And um, so Airy Neve, her right-hand man, was killed by the INLA weeks before she won for the first time in 1979. She and others were very nearly killed in the Brighton bomb in 1984. And um, shortly before she left office, uh, in July 1990, I think it was, um, Ian Gower, former um, parliamentary private secretary and a great friend, was killed by the IRA. So um, it was sort of bookmarked and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and very badly affected by IRA attacks. And of course, this, this um, naturally affected her psychology. And I think it had the bad effect that physical security kept her away from people. After the Brighton bomb, it was much harder for her to meet the British public in general because of the degree of protection uh, that was needed, um, and, and that was regrettable. Um, her attitude to the Irish question was very strongly affected by terrorism, actually, not particularly by terrorism against her. She was a strong unionist, but she wasn't at all averse to the idea that there could be better relations with the Republic and um, that uh, the nationalist population in, in the North should have a better deal and so on. What made her absolutely adamantine was the idea that uh, British people were being murdered and that any concession should be made to people who were murdering them. And in particular, and above all, she felt this was true of people who were serving the uh, United Kingdom um, in the armed forces or the police, so the RUC um, uh, soldiers in Northern Ireland and so on. Um, and the idea that anything should be conceded because they were being murdered was something she um, absolutely couldn't tolerate. And it was one of the reasons that she was so firm on the hunger strikes, though she did, in fact, secretly show some pragmatism there of the sort we were talking about earlier. But nevertheless, she was very firm. And, um, and she felt the idea that they could prevail um, by hunger striking was something that had to be resisted. Charles, what was her real position on South Africa and apartheid? Because it definitely seems to have been a pragmatic approach. At times she was uh, working to remove apartheid. At other times she was denouncing the ANC as a terrorist organisation. She was praised after his release by by Nelson Mandela. So it's it's a kind of a complex and somewhat ambiguous uh, positioning. It is. She, remember, it was the Cold War, and there was a, the, the ANC were backed um, by uh, the Soviet Union, and she saw it partly in Cold War terms. Um, but she was very determined to help bring about the end of apartheid by peaceful means, emphasis by peaceful means. And she allowed uh, MI6 to, um, at the same time, to have secret communications with the ANC and establish pretty good relations while she made it her business to keep lines open to the white government in South Africa. And she was really the only important world leader who did that. And therefore, she inspired the trust of F.W. de Klerk when he tried to, uh, indeed, tried successfully to change, to move away from apartheid. And so there was a bit of what Blairites would would call triangulation here. Um, And she did manage actually to end up with a a friendly relationship with Nelson Mandela, including a sort of secret little holiday she gave him uh, here in, um, in in Britain in 1990, uh, when he was in a sort of MI6 safe house in Kent, <laughs> um, to maintain that, but also to keep the trust of the whites. And I think she did therefore contribute more than other exterior statesmen to the peaceful transition. 
Richard, how would you define Thatcher's Britain then? You've written about the politics and social upheaval of the 1980s. And I wonder, uh, by the time she was leaving office in 1990, how had she transformed or had she transformed British society and politics? Yeah, I think she had. So I think that probably the single biggest thing she'd done was that the trade unions were much weaker in 1990 than they had been in 1979. Um, And I think that was something that the Conservative Party as a whole um, and as I say, people beyond the Conservative Party actually were quite keen to happen. Um, and obviously, she'd made the free market much stronger. So privatisation was very important. Uh, the sale of council houses was very important. So she'd done a whole variety of things and got to a point where these things really couldn't be reversed. I mean, um, obviously, in some ways, she'd kind of taken the war to the enemy in the sense that the Labour Party itself had changed partly in response to her. Uh, there was a sense that all sorts of changes she'd made couldn't be reversed. So and that that's her real kind of transformational impact. I think if you look at most post-war governments, they serve for short periods of time up to 1979, um, don't always achieve anything very lasting. Whereas obviously in certain ways, the whole kind of settlement had been changed by the time Thatcher left power in 1990. And Richard, are you surprised at how it all unravelled over something like the poll tax? and uh, Or was it just that that was the catalyst and that really what you saw was uh, uh, the people around her perhaps losing faith? Or was it just as simple as opinion polls showing that the Conservatives were becoming unpopular and the Conservatives did what they do best, which was to be ruthless to stay in power? Uh, a mixture of all those things. So I think partly, as I say, the Conservative Party is becoming fed up over Europe. Uh, partly the poll tax is an absolutely mad idea, um, which Nigel Lawson, if he'd lived up to um, what he claimed to believe in, should have stopped um, because there were lots of Tories who knew perfectly well it was a mad idea. I think partly she's losing her political touch. Partly uh, she's alienated too many of her colleagues by 1990. But also I'll finish by saying something which I think might exasperate at least one of the other people on this panel, which is that I think there's an extent to which the overthrow of Thatcherism is really a kind of revolution within Thatcherism. It's not a revolution against Thatcherism. Um, And that in lots of ways, John Major is a very successful Thatcherite. He actually pushes some of her economic policies further than she would have done. But he's brilliant at making himself seem tremendously consensual. And I think in a funny kind of way, Thatcher's attacks on Major after she leaves office actually rather serve his purposes, because then he can say, oh, I'm just this kind of, you know, very modest, moderate kind of person, Um, when he's actually continuing, as I say, with policies, sometimes I think which would have gone beyond what Thatcher herself might have dared. And Richard, she has become a cultural icon. She is uh, one of these figures who you can have, you can have 10 conversations and come up with 10 different opinions on her. And will that be her lasting legacy? It's not just what she did for Britain and Britain standing in the world, but that she will always be as Britain's first woman prime minister. She'll always continue to inspire these heated debates about what she stood for, what she did and whether she was a positive or a negative uh, figure. I mean, I think she will to some extent, although uh, no one is immortal and um, no reputation is immortal. So um, I think Thatcher will obviously um, begin to pass from history one day. Being Britain's first woman prime minister is an extraordinary achievement. But um, uh, there have been two women prime ministers since her. And obviously, one of the strange things we look back on about Thatcher now is all sorts of things that you know seemed strange or impossible in 1979 now are kind of taken for granted. And I suppose women in the front line of politics is taken for granted now in a way it wouldn't have been in 79. And Charles, I'll leave the final word with you. How do you think Margaret Thatcher is remembered today in 2023 on the 10th anniversary of her death? And uh, I suppose, what do you think is her, her, her lasting legacy? Well, I think she is very vividly remembered. And I'd sum it up in her sort of personality and her sex um, by remarks she made. She was fed up one night Having, uh, having to listen to a lot of speeches by men. And she said, um, I've just li- listened to seven speeches by men, and all I want to say is that the cocks may crow, but the hen lays the eggs. And uh, I think that's her attitude, and I think that's stuck in people's minds. 
Okay, well, I think that's a brilliant note on which to end our discussion tonight. My thanks to Charles Moore, uh, Baron Moore of Etchingham, the author of the award-winning three-volume biography of Margaret Thatcher, Professor Clive Bloom, author of Thatcher's Secret War, Professor June Purvis, uh, the editor of the Women's History Review Journal, and Professor Richard Vinan, Professor of History at King's College London and the author of Thatcher's Britain. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together. Marisa Sullivan, my producer, Shannon Murphy on research and Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been talking history. Good night and happy Easter.